For decades, the Vietnam War has been a Hollywood obsession. Apocalypse Now, Platoon, Full Metal Jacket, First Blood. These were blockbuster films, embraced by audiences and critics alike. And for decades, they've helped us understand a painful war and understand each other. From Spotify and the Ringer Podcast Network, I'm Brian Raftery, and this is Do We Get to Win This Time? How Hollywood Made the Vietnam War. Listen on the Big Picture feed. This episode is brought to you by eBay Authenticity Guarantee. You'll know real when you get it. It'll say eBay Authenticity Guarantee, and you'll feel it. Maybe it's a head-turning handbag, a watch that says it all, jewelry that makes you look like the gem. Sneakers and streetwear so fresh, every step feels fly. When it comes to style and luxury, eBay gets it. They're making sure the things you love are checked by experts. Not just any experts, specialized experts, real people who love this stuff, with real hands-on authentication experience. So when you see that shiny blue checkmark that says Authenticity Guarantee, shop with confidence. Every inch, stitch, sole, and logo is verified authentic through a detailed inspection. That's how you know that eBay's got your back. Because when you finally step into those sneakers, put on that watch, get your real gold glow up, swing that handbag over your shoulder, or step out in that streetwear, you'll realize that feeling is unlike any other. With eBay Authenticity Guarantee, you can trust that feeling of real is always in reach. Ensure your next purchase is the real deal. Visit ebay.com for terms. This episode is brought to you by cars.com. When you add your car to your garage on cars.com, you'll unlock access to real-time insights into how much your car is worth. Plus, view its historical and projected value to decide when to sell. So when the time is right, you can secure an instant offer from a local dealership or sell it yourself on cars.com. Start tracking your car's value with your garage on cars.com. Hello and welcome to Ringer Dish here on the Ringer Podcast Network. This is not jam session. This is not tea time and we are not your friends. We are simply here to discuss the iconic contribution to the pop culture canon on this, the 20th anniversary of the seminal teen television show, The O.C. I am personally calling this episode The O.C. Soundtrack, You'll Always Be Famous. And I'm thrilled to be joined by music, culture, and O.C. expert Nora Princiati to discuss it all. Nora, how are you? Wow. Hi, Jody. I am doing really, really, really well. We have invaded the Ringer Dish feed. We're so excited to be here to talk about the music of the OC, one of my absolute favorite all-time subjects. I'm thrilled to be potting with you for the first time ever. Listeners may not know. They also may not care, but I'm going to say so anyway. Jody and I became fast friends on a Ringer Spotify trip in Stockholm <laughs> and... It was a really magical experience for both of us, but we've never had a chance to bring that to life on a pod. So I'm very, very excited about this. It's our first pod together. I won't make you say it back, but I do believe that we became best friends in Sweden and we are the Marissa and Summer of the Ringer. And I won't make either of us say which one we are. <laughs> yikes. <laughs> Strong yikes. <laughs> or we're the Ryan and Seth of the Ringer and I won't make also either of yikes. us yikes. Yeah. We're Anna. We're the Anna of the Ringer. <laughs> I think that's better. We're so excited to be here on Ringer Dish talking about 
the OC soundtrack, which if you are an original OC fan, if you are a new OC fan, a current OC fan, I don't know if Gen Z is out here binging OC like they binge some teen TV shows. Do you think so, Nora? So our wonderful producer, Olivia, who's going to make some magic with this episode, is I believe a member of, of Gen Z. Olivia, tell me if I'm, you know... She gives a thumbs up. Yeah. So we have a certified member of Gen Z amongst us. And I logged onto the Zoom to record this. And Olivia was so politely like, so the OC, what is that? And that was a humbling moment. I think it was a humbling moment for us all. It probably should have been. But what I said was that, you know, it's really, it is a show for all ages, a show for all eras. And one, actually, because then we went went on to have a little conversation about it, it is amazing how much of a tail this show has had. I mean, it was only four seasons. It went absolutely off the rails in seasons three and four, got sort of abruptly canceled. But from the ways in which it was self-referential to the sort of like aspirational Californianness of it all, which obviously led to Laguna Beach, also led, I think, to a lot of like Real Housewives content has its roots in some of the, the cultural phenomenon that the OC became. This show had a really, really, really long cultural tale. And a huge part of that was both the music in general, because it popularized a lot of bands, the music supervisor, Alexandra Pizzavas, who I interviewed for the piece that's up on the site, who is just like one of the most, if you make a list of just people who are specifically good at what they do, she to me, she is in my top 10, probably like in the entire world, um, because she did the OC soundtrack. She did the Grey's Anatomy soundtrack. She did the Twilight soundtrack. She did Gossip Girl. Um, she did all of those. She works at Netflix now, and she is responsible for all of those like classically arranged pop songs that are on the Bridgerton soundtrack. She's just like an unbelievable person who has had massive impact on what we've heard on television over the last 20 years, whether we know that we're listening to, to her work or not. I think in this episode, we'll get to talk about some of the bands that genuinely were broken on the O.C., So like, that's why it is so much fun is because even if Gen Z has absolutely no idea the show exists, some of the things that we live with now absolutely have their roots in both the show and its soundtrack. So well said, Nora. And like thinking- Know your history, Olivia. (laughs) You too are impacted by Death Cab for Cutie on the OC. And I was thinking about in preparation for this pod, like what are other shows right now? Because such a big thing about the OC, which we'll talk about here, and you can also hear about on Prestige TV pod where Joanna and Juliet and Bill have been talking about the first seven episodes of the OC is we don't have a television monoculture like this anymore. And the way that everyone was watching the OC 20 years ago, made it possible for the OC to do things with music, to break bands, to premiere songs that to this day are like some of the most popular songs in the world that we will get to, that you just can't do as much anymore because everyone's not watching the same show. They're all maybe binging it in the same week and then it's sort of 
out of the discussion. But I was thinking about other shows that are using music in such an impactful way currently. And I was like, oh, Bridgerton. And then it was like, bow, 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 another Alexandra production. Like, that's crazy that she, I mean, you're right. She's just so talented at what she does. And Nora has written this amazing piece, which you can read on theringer.com now. And I'd love to ask you before we get into our countdown, Nora, a little bit more about your personal relationship to the OC and to its music and why this was something that like, I think I've heard you say, you know, you wanted to basically write this and do this interview for years and years. Like, why was this so important to you? So I am obsessed with Alex. I came to the OC. I did. I actually also did not come to the OC in, in real time. I'm like a cuspy millennial. Mm-hmm. I'm like a an end of the millennials. So I was a little young for it when it was actually airing. But Alex did Gossip Girl, which was is one of my favorite shows. The books were very important to me. The show was very important to me. And the soundtrack was very important to me. And like, if you go through her IMDb, you find just like 60% of, of the most impactful pieces of culture of my adolescence. <laughs> and I am a huge fan of music. And I just, I love a soundtrack, like a good montage or just something that, that evokes so much feeling when you hear a perfect song and, and see something on a screen is like, I just think those are the coolest moments in the entire world. Like I am never receiving a bigger dopamine hit than when I'm watching TV or a movie or whatever. And there's just a perfect song and a perfect moment. The one of, of Alex's work that I probably put above all is, are you familiar with the baseball scene in Twilight? Yeah, of course, Nora. I'm not a cuspy millennial. I'm a perfectly mid millennial (laughs) and I am familiar with the baseball scene in Twilight. (laughs) It's just like, it is so hard to explain how perfect and wonderful and important that moment is, but it is just like Robert Pattinson playing weird vampire baseball to super massive black hole by Muse. And like when I, as a ninth grade dorky high school student, who had absolutely no idea who Muse was. Like, just absolutely no no reference point there. Watched that movie. I was just like, I feel like I am doing hard drugs. Like, <laughs> I, I don't know what that feels like, but it must feel like this. So, and I don't remember at what point I sort of put it together that she was responsible for so many of those. I mean, Snow Patrol and Grey's Anatomy, right? Like, Whew. these things that are just, have just been references throughout my entire cultural life. But I always wanted to to just be able to write about her work in some way, shape, or form. So, you know, when we figured out that the 20th anniversary of VOC was was coming up, I jumped at the chance. And so it's it's funny that you're bringing up kind of the monocultural nature of the show. And the thing that I think is incredible about her career, and then particularly this show, is that a lot of the way that you would typecast some of her soundtracks generally involves using a lot of like indie rock or sort of like alternative music. And it's a really interesting mix of stuff that was sort of outside the mainstream being brought into it, which I think had to do with why it was so important to me because look, I primarily cover Taylor Swift and the National Football League. I am there for a massively popular mainstream phenomenon. Sure, you got it. However, be. 
I love music. And in the mid 2000s, especially if you're, you're, you're too young to like really know how to seek out the fringes of culture, it was hard to experience new, new stuff because, and, and I went into some of this in the story, like it's an era of massive radio consolidation. You are hearing Bad Day by Daniel Powder every six minutes when you, you know, turn the dial on and respect. But I think, and I probably wouldn't have known this at the time, but I was really excited about the chance to learn about a new band or just have something different to listen to than the songs that I loved on, on Top 40 Radio, which was primarily my listening diet. And so when, you know, Rooney was on Gossip Girl or The O.C., then I would be like, oh my God, I love, like, I love these songs. This is something for me to really like, something new for me to to dig into. So that I think is, is Alex's sort of superpower is being able to fit those slightly idiosyncratic choices into like peak, peak monoculture. And it is also, I think, ultimately like, holy shit, muses in the Twilight soundtrack. Like that is, that is what drove it home for me. I love hearing your passion. I love hearing you talk about it. And like, she truly does just know how to so toggle for the exact thematic show or movie that she's soundtracking. And for the OC, like you said, like it's got its tentacles and so many things that we're watching and listening to and doing now. And that's because the OC soundtrack made you feel cool. The OC, when you really go back and watch it, is like, it's not cool. It's corn. You know, it's corny like any teen soap opera, but it made you feel cool. And such a big part of that, one is drugs and alcohol and sex. The other part is (laughs) the music and like getting to discover new music. And it can't be overstated that we barely had the internet then. We did not have social media. And like social media is a huge way. And the, you know, the way that shout out Spotify functions is like a huge way that I discover music now. Like I'm rarely now listening to a show and discovering a new band, I'm like, and this is embarrassing, but maybe discovering it on TikTok, you know? So like, we didn't have that then. But I think like that really has become the replacement, right? Is like a funny thing that I, is that they'd used Running Up That Hill in the soundtrack at one point, which had the huge TikTok moment recently. And it's such a funny thing to think about because like TikTok, I think has, has, in a lot of ways moved into the space that, you know, not just the OC, but a Grey's Anatomy or just a lot of network television or like commercials even occupied in in the mid 2000s because, you know, the music industry was in shambles in a lot of ways. And it was that peak consolidation era. And especially if you were just like a little left of center, one of the best ways to get discovered was to have a, a song on a show. And now I think that that role, you know, it is a little different because we don't have the monoculture in the same way, but that has been replaced by social media and to some extent the streamers. But I think TikTok would be the primary method now. Yeah. Every generation has its way that it discovers Jeff Buckley's Hallelujah. And this was mine. For me, this was it. (laughs) It's like I found it on the OC. Maybe I I found it on Shrek first, but I definitely found it on the OC. Like... (laughs) Like so many of these songs that we're going to count through. So 
we are, there are so many iconic music moments that like, I'm already a little torn up inside about, about ones that we can't include, but there's just only so much time that we can hijack the Ringer Dish podcast. Um, so we are, if you don't mind me stealing your joke, Nora, I'm going to say welcome to the top 10 moments of the OC soundtrack, bitch. To borrow a line from Luke and borrow a line from Nora and count us through what we are. Well, I will say Nora is the expert and Nora made this top 10 list. I have one, which is Jody's way of, of saying, don't hold her responsible for anything that any egregious placements hold me responsible for everything but one, which I will confront Nora about during this podcast. <laughs> I'm so excited. Nora, I have absolutely no you, idea what it is. Really? You don't know? I really like, I really stand by all my choices. I, the thing is, okay, this is how I know that the OC has great music. Cause I stand by your choices too. And like, when I looked at you, you included a few honorable mentions for me to take a look at. And I was like, oh, those should all be in the list. And then I read the list and I was like, well, these should all be in the list. And then I read number two and I was like, well, that should be number one. And then I read number one and I was like, well, obviously that's number one. Like it could all be in there. These are the 10 most iconic moments for a lot of reasons. And I'm going to ask Nora to kick us off with number 10. Okay. So where else could we possibly start? other than with Death Cab for Cutie. Do not insult Death Cab. It's like one guitar and a whole lot of complaining. That reminds me of someone else who's doing a whole lot of complaining. My number 10 moment was is comes from season one, episode seven, which is called The Escape. And it's a movie script ending, which plays in the car as Seth, Summer, Marissa, and Ryan drive to Tijuana, a.k.a. TJ which is something that I've never heard anyone say other than on the show is to call Tijuana TJ. And I chose it not necessarily because the song itself is as front and center as some of these, these other songs will be, but this is the song that was the backdrop to the conversation between Seth and Summer, where Summer refers to Death Cab as it's like one guitar and a whole lot of complaining. And Seth responds, just affronted and tells her that you do not insult Death Cab. And so this is really, I mean, Death Cab eventually performed on the show, was featured a bunch of times, was Seth Cohen's favorite band. And that's why I think they have to be on the list and why this is, this is the one that really sticks it to me because I actually think more so than like, if I close my eyes and think of my favorite sonic moments of this show, I don't hear any of the Death Cab songs but what I hear is Seth talking about Death Cab. What I hear is the way that, you know, his fandom became one of the main ways that the creators wrote music actually into the fabric of the plot. And his defense of just like sincere quasi-emo balladry is so meaningful to me. So that that's why I went with this song over... You know, they use a lack of color really well uh, later in season one. And, and there's a bunch that you could pick from. But this is it for me. Yeah. I mean, Seth is so integral to the, um, like you said, like the fabric of the show. The OC is not just soundtracked. Like it doesn't just use music to make emotional moments. It's 
has music in the core of its characters. It sometimes explains why it's using a song. They're listening to Death Cab for Cutie in the car. They're also talking about Death Cab for Cutie. And that is how I, in like late middle school, early high school, discovered Death Cab for Cutie. And that's how, you know, it's like how you were learning about bands on the OC. And this is definitely a big one coming directly from Seth. I will say... You know, I, like I think most people, had the hugest crush on Seth Cohen uh, while watching The O.C. Watching it back as an older person, I recently wrote an article for TheRinger.com about um, the types of guys that we see in Barbie, the movie. Uh, There's a really amazing (laughs) montage where you just kind of see him cycle through a couple types of guys, the type of guy that shows you the Godfather, the type of guy that explains Death Cab for Cutie to you and why you should like them, even if you don't like Summer. And Seth's the type of guy. He's the type of guy we're thankful for. Ugh, I don't even want to say that. I don't even want to say that. <laughs> okay, but here's here's the thing, though, is that, like, I did one of the Prestige episodes recapping six and seven, uh, including this episode, with Juliet and Joanna. And we were talking about how, like, Seth, who is is, you know, this emo dork, as he's referred to on the show, is kind of, like, Seth Cohen in 2023 gets a lot of ladies. And even if he wasn't Adam Brody, right? Like that prototype of, you know, culturally fluent, like really likes his, really likes a certain type of music, wears a lot of ironic t-shirts, like for better or for worse, we have gone to a place over the last 20 years where I don't think that he would, he would accurately track as loser in the same way now. No, definitely not. But I think now a teenage girl might know to be like, please don't explain Death Cab for Cutie to me. (laughs) Yeah. And for that, we can be very grateful. And for for that, we're grateful. But we're also grateful for the music that Seth uh, brought into our lives. Okay, coming in at number nine, and I think Nora is going to have a better handle on on this full episode than me, but is EPRO... By Beck from season two, episode 15, The Mall Episode, which I believe we also lovingly call the Beck Episode. The Beck Episode. <laughs> okay, I was seeing different things. It is spelled, they often spell it with a P, and I'm like, we got to eliminate it's the Beck Episode, not the Beck Yeah, no, episode. not the Beck Episode. That's terrible. I was no, pushing it. Absolutely not. But this episode debuted five Beck songs, which is really interesting for a show that was so often debuting new artists um, to be debuting almost a full Beck album. And the specific one that we've chosen for this number nine spot is EPRO, which is playing when Ryan and Marissa, Seth and Summer are stuck inside the mall, which to this day is one of my greatest dreams, is to be trapped in a mall, trapped in the National History Museum, wherever I can get trapped and have to like invade a vending machine, you know, find a sleeping bag in the camping store. So it's a pretty iconic scene altogether, but also the use of this Beck music is just really interesting. I mean, to me, like the inclusion, the reason it deserves inclusion on this list is one, just like, it's a great song. 
but it is so representative of the like shocking power that this show accrued so quickly and particularly within music. You said it. They debuted five Beck songs. What happens in this episode is four teenagers get stuck in a mall and play like street hockey with some stuff they steal out of a a sporting goods store. You do always have to remember, especially when they're debuting these songs, debuting these bands live on stage at the bait shop, that like, this is a teenage soap opera. It's like, it was important to us because of how we watched it, but it is still just a teen soap opera. And like, right. And the thing is, it's like, I say this so lovingly, like this is among my favorite shows of all time. Yes. The OC is kind of embarrassing sometimes. It went so, it is an unhinged show about teenagers messing up and being in love with each other and and fight. Like it shouldn't have been a place where Beck was willing to debut half an album. Like it, it just shouldn't have been. 27, 27 episodes in the first season. There's no chance you're not getting a little embarrassing by season two. If you have 27 episodes in your first season and still in season two, Beck was like, hell yeah, let's get five, get five of my bad boys on there. Like sign me up. And th- that's just magical. You know what else I saw when I was reading up on this episode is that is that right after it aired, they debuted the full trailer for Star Wars Episode 3 Revenge of the Sith. Like the the cultural weight that the OC was carrying to be debuting five Beck songs and the trailer for Star Wars is pretty monumental. Again, like the Maul episode, the Beck episode, whatever we're calling, like it's not a it's like a pretty light episode. It's yeah, like a silly... not one you a, think of. There's a lot of silliness. It's a great episode. I actually really love it. But it's it's because I love when the OC is light. Like, I love when it's funny. I love when it leans into our TV friends being stuck in a room and or a mall together. Um, some people, I think, feel more compelled by the high drama. But a lot was riding on every episode of this thing. There were there were a lot of media dollars and and desire to accrue eyeballs. It was like culturally powerful. But I appreciate this about you, Nora, that your list does include because if pressed, I am that person who's probably just listing 10 of the most emotional moments that I had with the OC because of music. But you've got a couple in here that are fun and that are part of music history. I would say including number eight. Number eight is Smile Like You Mean It. By The Killers. It's from season two, episode four, The New Era. People may remember this as the absolutely disastrous double date with Lindsay, Seth, Ryan, and Alex at the bait shop. And so the bait shop, the live music venue that they started using in season two was one of the ways in which after realizing that the soundtrack was really hitting and was really important to people, they tried to increase the role of of music and use it in different creative ways, including having all these live performances. That was, they'd sort of tried it out a little bit in season one, but in season two, like season two, really, there were a lot of, of heavy duty bands that came through there, including the Killers, who were really early on just out here with like shaggy OC haircuts. Like they, they don't even look like themselves. I would say 80% of the bands that played in the bait shop. I think we're going to, you know, I don't mean to spoil, but like, we're going to talk about Rooney at some point in this episode. 
the rule was that your hair had to like flop over your eyes in some way, shape or form. I guess Brandon Flowers had kind of a shorter haircut, but it was all shaggy. In it's one longer way than you've ever seen it any other time. And like the, a thing about the OC is it was a big fan of male bangs and they do seem, <laughs> they do seem to enforce that like Luke and Ryan haircut upon all of their live performance singers. I mean, I think they were just putting some people in wigs. I'm literally dead. Joanna and, and um, Juliet and I were talking about how Sandy Cohen was the only person who had good eyebrows in 2003. Oh, man. And obviously, even as a child uh, or an adolescent, I knew that Sandy was hot. But hitting the rewatch in 2023 is just like yeah. Peter Gallagher. Whew, doing a great job. The Cohen men. Pretty good. Pretty yeah, good. Just pretty, pretty integral to a couple of awakenings for me. So, you know, you said something actually earlier that made me think like, am I grateful or sad that we never had a musical episode of the OC? So I think there was an OC musical, but not on the show. Yeah, right. I just, you know, a la Buffy or any number of shows that have done right. it. It seems like it could have happened. I'm sure it came up and was pitched. And I think ultimately I'm grateful that I never really saw, you know, Seth Cohen doing a musical number. I mean, Peter Gallagher did sing. He did? Yeah. So Peter Gallagher sang Don't Give Up On Me, um, Solomon Burke, in an episode, I think in season two, season two or season three. If you just want to hit me with that link to watch later, that would be, you know, much appreciated. Was it when he, I think it might've been when he forgot uh, his and Kirsten's anniversary. I think that's that episode, but he did sing live and yeah, I'll hit you with the link. I mean, of course it was doing something lovingly for Kirsten. And I will say, you know, a bit of a, a bit of a, let me sing at you with my guitar type of guy, but that's okay. (laughs) Cause he can do it. Yeah. there's a lot. I mean, look, there's a lot of like, Anyway, here's Wonderwall. Literally, the cover by Oasis. Anyway, here's Oasis singing Wonderwall. <laughs> here's, here's Wonderwall. Um, yeah, no, they, they channel that a little bit. But anyway, Smile Like You Mean It. Um, one, just an incredible song. Two, I think the Killers are probably the biggest band the OC can lay claim to, like, having broken. And, you know, I, I talked to Alex about this a little bit, and... I think everybody is very hesitant to be like, oh yeah, like we broke the killers because the killers were probably going to be very, very famous one way or another. But this was like, I mean, Hot Fuss was fresh off the presses and had not really like hit. And this was a big deal. So it's both a great performance. It's a great song. And also just a real like sliding doors moment, I think, in the history of that band. The other thing that's incredible about this is that, I mean, we're, we're talking a lot as we should be about how, how much Seth loved music and how that sort of painted the musical sensibility into the show. I think it's so underrated how well they did the inverse with that, with Ryan having just like absolutely shitty taste and loving journey. And just having like a real disinterest in music. Like this is a person who says at least twice in in the early episodes, like I don't really listen to music. And to say that, I mean, the OC did always have like a self-awareness about what it was doing, how it was weaving it into its characters. And then in a third layer, how to be meta about it. And yeah, like Ryan is someone who would not be that into music. And it's, during this 
Killer's concert at the bait shop that he is on the disastrous date with Alex, a.k.a. Olivia Wilde, in just, again, a set of bangs that you cannot believe. I guess it's her actual... Bangs and highlights. Her actual hair being morphed into like a front sock bun bang, which I assure you at the time I was trying to do with my curly hair um, in like... The ninth grade. Oh, I don't even want to think about it. No, I was. I was, I was not older. enough manic panic in the world. No, I. At least I, I never messed around with highlights. I'll give myself that much. Um, but she, he's like, yeah, I'm. I'm not really into music. Are you? And she's like, yeah, it's my passion. <laughs> she delivers that line really well. It's a really good. Like, I can't believe I'm here with this guy. Our favorite character? No, a great performance. Probably yes. It's hard to get past past the bangs, but yes. Let me ask you this, Nora, before we move on to number seven, because this is a killer's concert at the bait shop. You have chosen Smile Like You Mean It for the number eight spot. Moments later, they play Mr. Brightside. Is there a reason you went with Smile Like You Mean It over Mr. Brightside, which is what I think of as like the iconic killer song? So I think, of, of course, I think of Mr. Brightside as, as the iconic killer song. I just, when I think of that killer's concert at the bait shop, and it's probably because of the dialogue, I hear them playing Smile Like You Mean It. So I associate that with the show a little bit more, probably also because while I've certainly heard Smile Like You Mean It many, many times since in other contexts, Mr. Brightside is just Mr. Brightside now. Like, Boy, I can't, is it? it doesn't. It belongs to no man, no woman, no show. Um, it belongs um, to me at karaoke, but we can, you know, discuss <laughs> that on a different platform. <laughs> I think I think the OC can kind of like, if they want to claim something, they can they can absolutely claim this smile like you mean it moment and and having that be part of the breaking of the killers. Well stated. Uh, coming in at nev- number seven is from season one, episode 27. That's right, 27 episodes. So, AKA the finale. Maybe I'm Amazed cover by Jem. Maybe I'm amazed at the way you love me all the time. At Julie and Caleb's wedding reception, which you may be thinking of briefly as a happy moment. But while this song is playing, being played live by the band at the reception, um, Marissa is just absolutely falling apart in Ryan's arms, telling him why, why she understands that she has to leave, but she doesn't want him to go back and she loves him. Um, tell me about this band and these covers for the show, Nora. So first I have a question. What's up? Did you have an issue with this? With this placement? Yeah. I didn't have an issue with it. If I were going to get one to sub in, if I were going to get a spot to myself as a non-music expert to put my honorable mention in, it might be here. But I also see this band as important to the show. I, I feel like this has sort of like a musical history to it, if not as much of a like iconic moment. So... It, this was just when I, when you said there was one spot where where we were going to have to debate it a little bit. I was curious and I was thinking to myself, okay, there's 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 two that I think it could be, and this was one of them. Oh, I mean, I'm not coming with solutions about where to fit in my favorite songs that aren't on this list. Um, I'm just coming to you oh, with it's confrontation. Ju- it's just that I have egregiously excluded something. Okay, correct. I get, I get, I get, I get. But we could also take this one out. <laughs> <laughs> 
so here's the thing. The the gem, maybe I'm amazed cover. Awesome. Um, they were doing around this time in the show, they decided to do a whole series of covers. Alex said that it was like, you know, sometimes it's a clearance thing. It's it's hard to get the rights to a Paul McCartney song sometimes. But they decided it was something to lean into, especially because there were bands that and artists who were really, really excited about being part of the show in some way. And it allowed them to kind of pick and choose. I guess the reason that I thought this might have been one where I could be accused of overrating it, but where I actually don't believe that I am, is this is the other thing that they did really well, right? Is like we've talked so much about kind of like how the soundtrack managed to add a cool factor to this teen soap opera. They also could do saccharin. They could do just like emotionally wrenching and... Here's Caleb Nichol, who's a bit of an ass, a bit, just a little bit, marrying Julie Cooper, who is in now in a relationship with a third generation, a teenager over the course of one one season where she's with Jimmy Cooper, Marissa's father. Then they get divorced. Then she hooks up with Luke, Marissa's ex-boyfriend, and then winds up marrying Kirsten's father a.k.a. the father of her ex-husband's ex-girlfriend and maybe the love of his life who he has this unrequited thing with. Um, They escaped by the skin of their teeth not having any of these people be, like, actually blood-related. Like, there's a world in which she's, like, hooking up with a dad and a son, and she doesn't ultimately do it. And I guess I'll give her some credit for that. (laughs) Restraint was not always the OC's forte, but there are some lines that I'm very grateful they did not cross that don't feel like out of the realm of possibility that it might have that it might have been part of a pitch meeting one day, but uh, we could be grateful for that. Julie will eventually think about murdering Caleb. Yes, <laughs> it's like an unbelievable turn of events. Um, but I do like I just give so much credit to this moment because somehow you're listening to Jem sing and you're just like, oh, oh. This is a beautiful wedding. I am happy for them. (laughs) Yeah, I did feel that way rewatching it. I was like, oh yeah, they had a a good thing going for a little while, but they didn't. They really did not. It was never good. (laughs) It was, yeah. In this moment. By any process of logical reasoning, it was at best a marriage of convenience. (laughs) But they really somehow sold it and they made you feel it. and, And that's the beauty of maybe I'm amazed. And that's why it gets our number seven spot. Nora, I'm just thrilled that in our every other order that you get to present the number six spot. And I'd like for you to channel your middle school self uh, or however you discovered this, whenever it was you discovered this band to do it. (laughs) Okay. Number six is Rooney. A band very near and dear to my heart. I discovered Rooney on Gossip Girl. I don't remember if at the time I knew that they were also on the OC soundtrack, but Rooney is really, really important in the, in the sort of timeline of music becoming increasingly integrated into the show because they were the first live performers. And I interviewed Robert Schwartzman for the piece, who's the the front man of Rooney and also just a princess diaries icon. I mean, I I can't really explain how important Robert Schwartzman and the character of Michael Moskowitz, maybe the original Seth Cohen, was to me. 
There's a direct line between Michael Moskovitz and Seth Cohen. And the difference is really just a haircut and like a lot more screen time. I don't, I wonder if, if Robert would be not, if like, that's not the role of his that he would be happiest for me to tie him to. But I hope that's not the case because it's just an unbelievable performance and an unbelievably important character. Yeah, and you don't have to do it, Nora. I will. Because like, I, I think- Oh, that I he, will too. I think he would at, at minimum understand that like- that character is so shaping for many a generation, even. He's 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 really good and he's so cute in it. And that's how I discovered Rooney, was just like, wait a second. Michael Moskovitz has a band. Incredible. <laughs> and it's on the OC. <laughs> like Rooney, I just have such a soft spot for Rooney, other than like beyond the fact that they have great songs. But we were talking about it a little bit and we weren't talking about Princess Diaries, but I had it in the back of my mind. You know, they were sort of this like, West Coast alt-rock band or like kind of power pop, right? Like they didn't really have a clear lane, but they knew um, they were part of a a pretty specifically California scene, but that was also sort of in conversation with the East Coast sort of indie rock, alt-rock, post-punk, whatever you want to call it, scene, like the Strokes and all of that that was really centered around New York. And that I think is, is, and this is something that, Robert said when we were talking, like people know about that scene a little bit more than the West Coast version of it. You know, we've had like a meet me in the bathroom and all of that stuff. I think people are a little bit more aware of it, but there was this like analogous stuff going on in California, which was something that the OC really tapped into. But I think like to him at the time, you know, they went on tour with the Strokes and they were friends with those guys. And that was sort of like the ecosystem that they existed in. And I think to some degree, it is a complicated dynamic, but one that he said he has become increasingly really grateful for, which is is really satisfying for me. And I'm sure you to hear that they got to all of a sudden be part of a completely different ecosystem, right? That has like a lot more women in it and a lot more young people and isn't as explicitly like cool. And he did say, because this is, this is season one, episode 15. He did say that initially, like he was a little bit, should I do this? Like he literally said, he was like, is this rock and roll? And like, no, No. Robert, it's not, it was not, (laughs) but it was awesome. And what convinced them to say yes was they got a copy of the script, which first of all, that was interesting because I also talked to like Rachel Yamagata who performed in in season two. And by the time she was there, it was not only like you don't get a script. It was when you are on set, you may not know what is going on. You can, you're going to see what the actors do, but to the extent that they can keep every single plot detail completely locked down, they were going to. Whereas when they were pitching Rooney to come on, Robert gets the whole script um, and he and the band go to read through and go, oh, it's not just that they want us to come on and play a song. It's that, first of all, Josh Schwartz, who was like a a huge, huge Rooney fan, had written them in in a way that showed them that, that he like got the band because you have... Luke, the best part of this episode is is the just like whiplash. Luke is a good guy now. Luke like becoming a cartoon character who's just, you know, thrilled to be alive and playing the guitar at you. 
basically in parallel to his discovery of Rooney, like starting from the place of, of Luke being like, I don't know who this band is. And then just being so into them and chanting Rooney and being like, I love Rooney at the end is a really fitting thing for the band, right? Because a meathead like Luke was not going to know Rooney. But also, Rooney has like pop hooks in those songs. So of course he's going to love Rooney. And they were touring their first album, which is the one with the California flag. So it's this perfect backdrop. And the whole scene is just so good. And so the success of all of that really, really encouraged them to create the bait shop for season two. So in one Rooney appearance, we got the resolution of a character arc for Luke. We got proof of concept that the bait shop should exist. We got a huge increase in visibility for Rooney. And we got yet another experience of male bangs. So there's just something for everybody in this. I thought you were going to say yet another experience of Ryan hating music because I'm glad they loved that script because he is absolutely miserable at the Rooney concert. But it's not on Rooney. It's on fucking Oliver because isn't it always? Oh, my God. We do not. We simply do not have time to get into Oliver right now. (laughs) It's not. It's not a part of this discussion. (laughs) Because we have to get into, I think, the most fascinating reveal of all of this for me, which I experienced in real time at the time, but did not realize coming in at number five from season two, episode 23, the O.C. spelled O dot S.E.A. is Coldplay's Fix you. When you try your best, but you don't succeed. Which premiered on the OC. I, I, Nora has, Nora has told me this, a trusted and intrepid journalist. I believe her. I still simply can't believe it. That is, it's very wild that Fix You, one of the most popular songs of our time. I just, it only, I mean, it's just still like a hugely popular and evocative, like emotionally compelling and evocative song premiered on this episode of The O.C. Tell me everything. (laughs) What a simply ridiculous flex. Like, it's not even, it's not even the use of the song, like whatever. They premiered Fix You. This song has become like, in a weird way, (laughs) almost a punchline in how overexposed it is. We actually ran a piece, I think Michael Bauman wrote it a few years ago on The Ringer about literally just about the overexposure of Fix You through largely a ton of uses in soundtracks. I mean, they like the newsroom really <laughs> leaned hard into this. They definitely would. The newsroom would definitely do that. Yeah, it was that that one was not quite so effective. This silly show premiered Fix You. Like, I, I honestly have nothing else. It's it's very funny that they use it at prom. It's a great scene. It's a great Seth and Summer scene. It is just probably, there are a lot of flexes that this soundtrack can claim. I think this is the, the biggest one. It's not the coolest. It's not my favorite. But it is probably pound for pound the most significant, like, holy crap, this happened on the OC before it happened on anything else. Yeah, I think it's just fully representative of how powerful the show was at that time. Um, And as we've mentioned, like, continues to be. This episode is brought to you by eBay Authenticity Guarantee. You'll know real when you get it. 
It'll say eBay Authenticity Guarantee, and you'll feel it. Maybe it's a head-turning handbag, a watch that says it all, jewelry that makes you look like the gem. Sneakers and streetwear are so fresh, every step feels fly. When it comes to style and luxury, eBay gets it. They're making sure the things you love are checked by experts. Not just any experts, specialized experts, real people who love this stuff, with real hands-on authentication experience. So when you see that shiny blue checkmark that says Authenticity Guarantee, shop with confidence. Every inch, stitch, sole, and logo is verified authentic through a detailed inspection. That's how you know that eBay's got your back. Because when you finally step into those sneakers, put on that watch, get your real gold glow up, swing that handbag over your shoulder, or step out in that streetwear, you'll realize that feeling is unlike any other. With eBay Authenticity Guarantee, you can trust that feeling of real is always in reach. Ensure your next purchase is the real deal. Visit ebay.com for terms. This episode is brought to you by State Farm. You might say all kinds of stuff when things go wrong, but these are the words you really need to remember. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. They've got options to fit your unique insurance needs, meaning you can talk to your agent to choose the coverage you need, have coverage options to protect the things you value most, file a claim right on the State Farm mobile app, and even reach a real person when you need to talk to someone. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. I'm excited for you to give us your number four because with your sheer use of language, it seems like this is the one you are most prepared to be defensive about. I am prepared to defend number four, which is the way we get by by Spoon. That's the way we get by, the way we get by. From season one, episode five, The Outsider. I'm prepared to defend it because they just use it for a montage at the beginning of the episode. So it's not like an important moment in the show, but I also feel incredibly secure in this pick. And I know that I am right. It's an episode five montage though. You know, like montages are still important in episode five for like laying down a foundation of this show. And what they're showing in that montage is this like buddy relationship between Ryan and Seth and they're, you know, just boarding and biking up the, it feels important to me. And also just like, like Ryan's new life. Yeah. Right. Which like the name of the episode is the outsider. They're going to explore a lot of the tension in that relationship and who Ryan associates with. And if he can comfortably exist in Newport versus like what's going to happen when he sort of connects with Donnie at work. The reason I chose this, and there is something to that and that I think it is used effectively and that that montage is significant and it does seem set in that way. This song just freaking rules. Like, (laughs) it's just a great song. And this is another happy moment. Like, this is just having a good time. This is like setting the tone. Yeah. This, This is just one of those, like, you feel awesome when you are listening to The Way We Get By and watching just scenes of the beach in Newport and and kids riding bikes. I'm bebopping just thinking about it. I'm just just ready to listen to it. Coming in at number three is a choice that I think Nora can also feel proud of because it is, as we get into these top three, the moments become iconic in every way. The song is iconic. What it's scoring is is iconic and the way that I personally feel in my heart when I think about it is iconic to my youth. Coming in at number three from season two, episode 14, The Rainy Day Women, which is just a great 
a great episode concept that it's raining in the OC and no one knows how to handle it. I love that. Is Champagne Supernova by Matt Pond PA. And you might recall that this song scores the Spider-Man kiss between Seth and Summer, which if you haven't rewatched lately, give it a go because it both works perfectly. The fact that they thought to do this for Seth and Summer is so perfect. But also Seth is wearing a Spider-Man mask, I believe because it's raining. I can't even... He's wearing the Spider-Man mask. He's getting up on the roof. He's He wants to create this big moment to get Summer back. He's in a Spider-Man mask, climbing on a roof, falls off. A rope catches him by his ankle. <laughs> and when Summer discovers him, instead of having a severed foot. Right. Also, like, they, they let him hang there. Oh, just forever. It's... Of course, it's TV time, so you can just flip from, like, Summer going to the Cohen's house, and then all of a sudden, she's there. Presumably, though, he had to have hung there for, like, 30 minutes. His foot would have been either decapitated then or needed to be decapitated later. Instead, he has the singular most romantic moment of his young, hot, nerdy life, and it is scored by Champagne Supernova, which is... Perfect. It's one of my favorite songs of all time. Um, I guess not necessarily the cover version, but it's just an incredible song. And it is one of the best scenes of, of the entire show. It is so satisfying. Seth and Summer are, we talked about this a little bit on the Prestige feed, like no offense to anyone who feels differently. No one feels differently. They can't. The show is Seth and Summer. The show if you is are Seth and Ryan Summer. and Marissa person, like I just don't trust you and want to know what happened in your life to to make that that way. If you are Ryan and Marissa person, like high school was tough. Like you it were was tough. <laughs> you were dealing with some stuff and seeing it, which you know in that case, I guess. But I hope you're a Summer and Seth person now. Yeah. Which I say because like some of the the sort of peak emotional moments between Ryan and Marissa, my experience of those is like usually relief. Like, uh, they've, they've figured out whatever the latest drama was. Whereas with Seth and Summer, it is just pure joy because they are meant to be together. And that is what you get to experience to the sounds of Champagne Supernova. The other thing that it does, that this song does soundtrack is Sandy and Kirsten, where Sandy gets off the bus and Kirsten's like, you took the bus, <laughs> which if you are Sandy and Kirsten Cohen is like the ultimate display of love. The Rebecca plot line with Sandy, I hate. Ugh. Sandy Cohen would never cheat. Never. And it goes far too far in that direction. And so they just use that moment to wipe the slate clean because she says, is it over? And Sandy says, I promise you, it never even started. And then we're back, baby. And we then everything's good with Seth and Summer and just all is perfect in the kingdom. And what is Champagne Supernova for if not wiping a slate clean? Absolutely. Love to be a rainy day woman. Nora, I'm so excited for number two. <laughs> Which in some world, in some world could be number one. Yeah. I mean, look, like one and two can really flip here. 
Um, and people can probably guess because there are two just like completely iconic pieces of this soundtrack that we have yet to discuss. With number two, I went with hide and seek. Imogen Heap from the season two finale, The Dearly Beloved, which plays twice, once at Caleb's funeral. And then again, I think most famously when Marissa shoots Ryan's brother. (laughs) Your casual unrolling of when Marissa shoots Ryan's brother reminds me of a really excellent run in your piece on the reader.com, which I cannot recommend enough in the opening graph. When you just list a few plot points from the OC, I'm going to read a little bit of it of reasons that you might need to cut to a song because you shot your boyfriend's brother or hooked up with your daughter's ex-boyfriend or found out that your girlfriend is your grandfather's long lost love child, or you've been suddenly reunited with your fugitive college girlfriend who burned down a nuclear laboratory and then faked her own death. Or maybe that porn you filmed in the eighties played at your magazine launch party. This is the OC. And this is what we're using Imogen Olivia Heap is for. never going to watch this show now. You think that's not going to convince Olivia to watch the OC? Then we haven't done our job, but you have done your job. She's got to be on board now. Okay, Olivia says that made me want to watch it more. What an unhinged television show. Yeah, we went on some wild rides. And this needle drop is, I think, everything that is just perfect about the soundtrack which is that this is a cool song, right? Like it is yes. very cool to hear Imogen Heap in that moment. Also, you know, in, in that piece, I referred to sort of this old cliche in musical theater that like when you're too emotional to talk, you sing. And I think there's a lot of that. And I think Alex actually, like, I think she's so good at that. And I think she was so good at that in, in Grey's Anatomy too. Um, and that this has always been one of the things that she's she's most effective at is that a lot of these moments don't necessarily make sense. They're just so over the top that you are walking a fine line of like keeping people bought into it because it has to feel real, right? It has to feel true. Otherwise, we're not going to be moved by it in the way that we're supposed to be moved by it. And I think that the soundtrack is what ends up selling a lot of that. And now that's not that people can't see the ridiculousness of it, right? Like SNL very famously parodied this exact needle drop in the skit where basically just like it's an, it's an OC setup. And every time people just keep shooting each other and they keep playing. And the song keeps starting up. Like it just keeps starting over. And just the like, "Mm, what you say? (laughs) Like over and over and over again. It is like, I'm sure everybody who's listening to this has seen this skit, but like one of the best of all time, honestly. Also really long. The skit? I was re-watching it the other day. Yeah. They go for like six minutes. Yes. just... Because they're building something. And like the parody is so powerful. And I think that that's why the number two spot for hide and seek is correct. Because there is a certain element of memory to this needle drop that just can't be overridden. Because that skit and it's you know, parody of the OC was so popular, so well done and so funny that like when I was rewatching this scene of Marissa 
coming in and shooting Trey before he can shoot Ryan, I was like waiting for a second person to get shot. I was like, isn't there something where a second person doesn't somebody else? That's the SNL skit. And like, even the OC is not that crazy, but this has just become like such a, such an iconic song as it relates to both of these moments that well, it, it is it is like the the cinematography of it is so funny because she slow shoots, motion. like Marissa shoots Trey and then there is like blood sort of gurgling but he's like standing up and you can see in his eyes he's like holy shit I just got shot Marissa just kind shot of me. smiles at her it is every picture is 8,000 words and they are milking it oh and yeah. again Everyone is collapsing in slow motion. They zoom right. up. Everybody is swooning. And for some reason, Marissa also on the ground. <laughs> right. Everybody is somehow on the ground. <laughs> Everyone died and, the- and came back to life. And Imogene Heap is still playing. <laughs> and the line of parody there, too, is like they are so tiptoeing on it. And I don't know if that was intentional or not. Right. Like. I this think is at not the, time the show it is very self aware, but I don't think when they are like peak emotional stakes, they're trying to do that. But they were tiptoeing on that line a little bit. The song is simultaneously like part of that and part of that ridiculousness that we like sort of love to think back on, but also I think is the only thing that can sell it where you are just like, oh my God, this is so intense. <laughs> And somehow you believe it to be like true in the way that they're communicating it, I think because of the song. And that is the magic of it. It is magic. It's it's a perfect song choice. And here, before we get to our number one spot, I will be confronting Nora uh, about one specific omission. <laughs> um, another one I think we could have slotted in there. And I think that this might be a generational difference. And it might be a difference of having watched it watched the OC live. And that is from season one, episode seven, The Escape, Mazzy stars Into Dust, which fans of the OC will recall as the song that was playing when Ryan, with Seth and Summer behind him, discovers an absolutely obliterated, passed out Marissa in a Tijuana alleyway And episode seven, which this is why I say it might be a difference of having watched it live. The first seven episodes, and I know you know this, but the first seven episodes of The O.C. air August to September 2003. And then then the show, which has already swept the nation with seven episodes, goes off the air. This is the last scene we see before the show goes on hiatus is Ryan holding a passed out Marissa to this Mazzy Star song. And to me, when I think about needle drops in the OC, like it's Imogene Heap and it's this one. What do we say? What do we say? Why does it not mean as much to you? So I want to say first that I think you're right. And this was the first thing that I wrote down as like, we need to recognize that this should be an honorable mention. I'll give you one cop-out reason why I didn't include it, which is that I think my list does lean towards, like, I wanted to hit all the different ways in which the soundtrack mattered. And this is, you know, this is in the vein of a, this is in the vein of a fix you or a hide and seek, um, or even kind of a, maybe I'm amazed, which is just like, you are pulling all of the emotional threads 
that are possible. Nora, I counter you with a how dare you say that this is the same as maybe I'm amazed. But the the other (laughs) points stand. The other points stand. So here's the other reason. And I do think you're right that if I had watched this in real time and had, and like, this is what I heard and then knew that I wasn't going to be able to find out if Marissa was alive or dead for, for weeks and weeks and weeks until and the show came back. what if you were in the ninth grade and this happened <laughs> and it was all you had to talk about? That's, that's, that's what important if, context. What if that's what that's happened? That's important context. <laughs> and I think if that is what had happened, then it would not only be on my list, but high on my list. In my personal journey, that is not how I experienced the OC. The other thing that's going on here, Juliet and I talked talked this through a little bit when we talked about this episode on Prestige, is that like this episode is not canon to me in the same way that I think it is canon to a lot of people. I'm sure that ties into the same thing that we just talked about. The Seth and Summer in the car is iconic yes. and one of my favorite sequences in the entire show. Ryan and Marissa have like sort of already become tiresome for me in some ways by this point. And I find the sequence of her overdosing so like jarring and so what is like, this is really dark and weird that I think I'm just not in a good emotional state to receive this needle drop by the time that it, that it goes. However, it is the honorable mention of, of all honorable mentions. I would say to that. And I think most people would, would read this list and go, where is Mazzy star? So I concede that certainly. And here it is with me defiantly listing it as our honorable mention. I appreciate, I appreciate your artistic and academic decisions while also holding space for Mazzy star. Nora, we we always are holding space for Mazzy star. You simply must please bring us in with our number one spot. California. 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 I mean, come on, it's Phantom Planet. I, I went back and forth a little bit on like, is hide and seek actually the the number one needle drop of all of the OC? But I I really ultimately have to give it to the theme. I was there was a Rolling Stones piece from a few years back that I was going through of like all of the, the best TV show themes of all time. And I think they had it maybe like 10th or 9th or something. Everything that was, was higher than it was pretty old. Yeah. So in our lifetimes, I really don't know that there is a more like iconic bit of theme music than this song, which I think was particularly critical for, for my relationship with the OC because I'm, I don't think I'd ever been to California even the first time I watched it and had just like sort of no conception of what the West Coast of America was like or was like in a sort of fantasy aspirational wealth kind of kind of way even. And the theme song makes you think it's really, really, really cool. The theme song makes you just want to be a part of it. And if the only way to do that is, is to watch the show, then that was absolutely what I was going to do. Um, I do think it's easy to forget that, you know, obviously it's, it's the theme for the entire show, but when they use it in, um, the premiere episode, they play significantly more of it and it soundtracks Ryan leaving Chino picked up by Sandy Cohen and going back to Newport. And I I think it's easy to forget just how significant 
that scene is and the use of the song in that scene as opposed to just as as the theme song. And it it intros it as the theme song to us. Like we get a moment with it before we proceed to hear it, you know, every week for 90 something episodes. You said this is a song that makes you want to be a part of it. It's also a song that makes you feel like you're a part of it. Like it really brings you in. And like I was driving around when my first friend got a car, driving around Waco, Texas, listening to California, just like (laughs) feeling that SoCal vibe. Like, absolutely. I will run into my Seth Cohen somewhere. Like it just is so, it's so perfect. And it goes with a handful, a small handful of theme songs that you always want to listen to when it comes up. Like, as you've said, this is one of our most recent, really good theme songs. And like with the, you know, addition of the skip intro button to Canon, even if you have a good theme song, a lot of times these days you're going to skip it. I'm always going to listen to the OC theme song. I will always listen to California. And it, it really like, it just does set the stage for the show so perfectly because it sets that, I mean, it it was, you know, Phantom Planet was part of that sort of West Coast scene that Jason Schwartz was a huge fan of. Um, It it was a really early use of of that to kind of set up the tone that they were going for. And it does tell you like, okay, you've seen two versions of California so far in the show, right? You've seen where Ryan's coming from and you've seen where the Coens are going and where he's going with the Coens you know absolutely with like perfect clarity that you are not going to be spent, you know, for better or for worse, right? But like you are not going to be spending equal time in both of those versions of California. You are going to Newport. That was not where I was imagining myself while in the passenger seat driving around Texas. (laughs) I was imagining Newport. It sets up that version of California and telegraphs that like these are going to be, these are the characters in the spaces that you are being invited to spend time in watching this show. I just, I just think so unbelievably perfectly. It's also a funny version of that. Like there's a story um, that Josh Schwartz, I think, has told a few times where he, and I think Stephanie Savage, who's one of the co-creators, they loved the song and they knew the song really well and, and you know, were used to hearing it and felt a little bit like, is this too on the nose? Do people, like, people know this song? The song's been done, whatever. And then I think they played it for some, like, Fox executives <laughs> who were like, what's that song? Like, Did I've you never make this, this for the show? So cool. <laughs> and then they were like, oh, okay, this audience has not heard, has not necessarily heard Phantom Planet. Um Jason Schwartzman, by the way, member of Phantom Planet, brother of Robert Schwartzman of Rooney. So we kept a lot of things like we were in an ecosystem here. And and that's, you know, it was it was a fun way to sort of feel like you were a part of that scene to have those recurring characters. If you were following the show closely enough to know, like, this is who's in Rooney. This is who sings the theme song. And, and I think they built that they built that network really effectively. And if you continue to follow it that closely 20 years later, (laughs) the OC is not the OC without this theme song. And we are not us without the OC. 
I'm so grateful to Nora Princiati for taking us through this with all of her expertise. Thank you, Nora. Thank you to Olivia Creary, newest OC fan on the block and producer of this podcast. And thank you to our Ringer Dish listeners. We will be hijacking the feed again soon. Bye.